If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, you've missed a lengthy introduction to the book of Judges. We took three, three studies, and we covered Judges 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3. Keep in mind that in the ancient text, there were not chapter and verse breaks. These were things that get added into the text by the translators to make our referencing easier as we're studying. It would be a lot more difficult to say, hey, turn to the middle page of like the third page of Judges and like in the middle part. No, I can just reference a specific location. And so the verses, the, the chapters get added in for reference. So when you're reading a book, keep in mind that, that, they're, that these breaks are arbitrary. Sometimes they're seamless and appropriate. Other times they're kind of a little clunky. I think in Judges chapter 3, it's a little clunky because the first couple verses conclude for us uh, Samuel, who I believe to be the author of Judges, it concludes his prologue. So the first two and, and a third chapters of Judges, Samuel is doing the audience a favor. He's recapping a little bit of Joshua, and he's setting the stage for this period of history that covers somewhere between 400 and 450 years. This time period gets marked by the death of Joshua, that's when it begins, and the birth of Samuel, who is the final judge and the first prophet. So we had this, this section of Jewish history, and within the prologue, uh, we saw that there were these cycles amongst the people. God had called them out. He had called them to holiness. He had set them apart. He wanted them, them to be a light shining on a hill, an example of a different kind of, of life, a life of godliness. And to do that, he said, eliminate these temptations within uh, the land. And they fail to be obedient. And so we see these cycles of, of them flirting initially with wickedness. And then they dive headfirst into it. And then they get judged by God. There's a judgment, which leads to a groaning that God hears. And so the God raises up a judge, a deliverer, a hero that liberates them from their captivity, bringing them back into this place of restoration, and then we see that there's peace for a period of time, and then the cycle repeats. Numerous cycles, seven to be specific, and 12 different judges we find. We've concluded with verse six, our introduction to judges, so we're gonna look this morning at the first of these judges, verse seven. So the children of Israel did evil and the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asterisks. Now again, within our introduction, we've touched on some of these themes. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's a common refrain you'll find often throughout the book of Judges. And it stands in a direct contrast to kind of the way the entire time period gets defined at the end of the book, where we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet over and over and over again, we have this, this refrain saying, well, it doesn't matter what is right or wrong in your eyes. The arbitrator, the definer of what is right and wrong is God. It's not based upon your perspective. It's based upon how God established these things to be. So we see this culture of relativism. Well, I'll do what's right for me. You do what's right for you. It's all good. But God steps in and is like, no, <laughs> what you're doing is evil in my eyes. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God. And again, we see this, this word forgot, 
probably not the best translation because it seems to indicate, well, they had just um, completely forgotten. You know, that this was absent-mindedness, that they were no longer thinking. But no, this word is more particular and intentional. To forget within the Hebrew language literally means to set aside. It wasn't as though that they had just forgotten the things of the Lord, or they had forgotten the miracles that God had did, or they had forgotten his deliverance from Egypt, or they, they had forgotten his appearance on Sinai, or they had forgotten the instructions or the victories of Joshua or the disobedience and the wandering in the wilderness. It's not that they had forgotten those things. They knew them well. It's that they made a, an intentional decision to set Jehovah God, the Lord, aside, and to do their own thing. They couldn't plead ignorance as if they didn't know. They knew. Therefore, verse 8, and that's an important word, therefore. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you know when you find a therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it there for? So God is acting in response to their blatant rebellion. This is not an accident. This is an intentional uh, trip, trek into disobedience. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They set the Lord aside. They served these foreign gods. Therefore, as a result of those things, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He was upset about it. And he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rashatim. I feel like I did pretty good with that one. I practiced that this week. King of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Kushan Rashatim for eight years. For eight years. This man, Kushan Rashatim, maybe it's his name, more than likely it was probably a title kind of given to him. Uh, by the Jewish people. The, the, the name itself literally means a double darkness or double wickedness. As a response to the children of Israel going into rebellion, setting the Lord aside, worshiping these false gods, what does God do? Does he drag them back kicking and screaming? No. In fact, God honors their wish. Okay, if you don't want to live in a covenant relationship with me, if you're setting me as your husband aside, if this is the decision that you're making, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to supersede your will. Instead, okay, I will give you over to the things that you want. Now, don't we find that often within our own lives? You know, understand God is a divine gentleman. And he will never force himself upon any person. Hey, God loves us. And his love has a jealousy to it. He cares for us deeply. And when we enter into sin or, or we're going into compromise or we're making some of the bad decisions, hey, it's God out of his love. He'll do everything he can to say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. That's not good. That's going to end badly. He will woo us with his love. He will speak to us. He will plead with us. But there comes a point in time where he will honor our rebellion. Okay. If this is really what you want, 
You're going to set me aside. You want to worship the bells and the asterisks. That's fine. I will let you. You ever been in a period of life? You knew you were doing the wrong thing. You knew you were making poor decisions. And you knew God was speaking to you. You knew he was saying no. You knew the dangers. You had the revelation. Maybe even God brought into your life friends or counselors that were like, listen, what you're doing, it's, it's going to be terrible for you. This is not the, this is not the path you want to travel, friend. And, and God was sending people and voices, and he was revealing himself, and he was trying to woo you, and you were coming to church, and it felt like God was just speaking straight to you because he was. But you kept setting it aside. You kept resisting, and you kept determining that you were going to do this, even, if, even though you knew it was wrong. And then God said what? Okay, go for it. And you wake up a few years later, and your life is in shambles, and it's a mess. And you think to yourself, what have I done? You see, God will allow us. In fact, sometimes he'll just, okay, here you go. And so they're worshiping the, the Baals, the asterisks, and so God allows this foreign power, this king of Mesopotamia, Kushan Rasha theme, to come in and to conquer them and to place them in servitude. They're no longer a free people. They're in servitude to this guy, and this guy is bad news. He's not just dark. He's not just evil. He's double dark, double wickedness. And for eight years, two presidential cycles, they were left to serve this foreign king. You know, I should add, I think in Western Christianity in particular, we struggle with an idea mainly because of, well, the country we live in. We often equate the idea of, of freedom and liberty to a concept based upon the limitation or the absence of authority. Again, that's kind of how America was founded. The land of the free, the home of the brave, limited government, limited authority, only the basic, only the things we need. So as a, as a Western Christian, we immediately think of, I'm free, I have liberty, when I don't have any accountability to anyone else, or I don't have any authority, I'm my own boss. I'm my own authority. I'm my own God. That's how we think of, of, of liberty. Liberty being the absence of authority in our lives. I'm free to do what I want. The problem with that notion is that it's, it's, it's false. Especially from a biblical notion, a biblical idea, because, well, as Bob Dylan's saying, everybody serves somebody. You see, the truth is, is that liberty in the Christian context isn't the freedom from authority. It's the freedom to choose a better authority. Again, as we've noted in our travels with Judges already, everyone is a worshiper. It's an innate thing. We all worship. We all pledge our allegiance to something. We all worship a thing. We all serve a thing. Now, we, we should serve God. And again, that was the beauty of our founding fathers. So they understood that what was necessary for a democracy to work wasn't the absence of authority, 
It was the limitation of human authority in the presence of a divine authority. That's why we're one nation under God. See, the, the idea is this experiment will work. We'll let people be free with limited government because we all are operating under this premise. We have a higher authority. Now, we've removed the higher authority, and so what's happened? We're getting greater human authority because we'll go crazy otherwise. We all serve. We all worship. So within this context, the children of Israel have one of two options. They can serve God or something else. And they've already set God aside, so God allows them to serve something else. Kushan, Rathahim, double wickedness. When you, when you go to the New Testament, and Paul does a great job of this, and the defining of, of liberty and freedom for the Christian. Paul uses a phrase often to describe himself as a bondservant. You see, Paul rightly understood, I will serve some master, but I'm going to choose to be the slave of Jesus versus the slave of money or the slave of insecurity or the slave of fame or the slave of, of pleasure. You see, you will be enslaved to something. Paul's like, I'll, I'll be a slave to Jesus. He's a much better master, a love slave, bond servant. So here we find that they're in servitude. And we'll find this pattern over and over and over again. They set the Lord aside. Okay, serve something else. And we see what replaces God are terrible masters. This double wickedness as the first example. And so for eight years, and when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now we were introduced to Othniel in a previous chapter. We were given a little bit of his backstory. He's the nephew of Caleb. Caleb wanted a territory uh, taken over, he offers Aksa, his daughter, as the prize. Othniel steps up, like, I got it, boss. Meaning, Aksa's a good-looking gal. And we, we, we looked at her. She's a godly gal, comes to Caleb, wants a double portion. Othniel marries Aksa. So this Othniel, in this time period, you've got Kushan Rashahim. We've got this, this conquering, this eight years. They start crying out to the Lord. So the Lord goes to Othniel and says, I want you to deliver the people. Now, that's all we're given as far as the information goes. We're not really told of, of the particular conquest like we will in some of the other stories. Now, one of the things I love about the fact that Othniel gets called by God at this point is that, again, and we're not told this in the scriptures, this is extra-biblical uh, referencing, Josephus, first century historian, notes that Othniel at this point in his life is 90 years old. He's an old man. He's done some conquering. He's been faithful. He's in retirement. He's sailing off into the sunset. But the children of Israel are groaning. They're in captivity, and God hears it. And he raises up Othniel. Can you imagine? God, I've, I, I've got a cane, a walker. I've got my little robo scooter. Like, I'm the last guy. Like, I don't have the energy for this. No. God calls him and says, I want you to deliver my people. Now, I should also mention, 
When the, children of the Israel, uh, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, verse 9, then the Lord raised up a deliverer. And, and, and again, it's easy to say that this was repentance. But this phrase we find, cried out, and you can do an in-depth study of this particular word, uh, this coupling in the Hebrew, but it, it really doesn't have any association to cry out, the Lord heard them crying out. He literally just heard them groaning. He heard them wailing. He heard them complaining. He heard their plight. Again, repentance within the book of Judges seems to follow after the intervention of the judge. God hears their groaning, raises up a deliverer. Repentance comes after that. And that's an important precedent. Because again, why did God send Jesus? Because we were all asking no, God sent Jesus, the great deliverer, because he loved us. God acted in spite of us. He intervened for us. And it's in response to the work of the deliverer that then we find repentance. Repentance doesn't necessitate the intervention of the deliverer. It's the response to it. We find this pattern throughout Judges, and we find it carried over to the New Testament. So the children of the Lord, they cry out, Othniel gets raised up, verse 10, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Literally, he delivered Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rashathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rashathim. So the land had rest. For 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. For 40 years, they had rest. Now, we're not given any specifics about exactly what Othniel did. He went to war. It's just a simple statement. Except for, I think that's intentional. I think the text is intentionally vague on the activity of Othniel because the author wants the emphasis to be on the empowering of Othniel. Again, Othniel is an old man. He's fought some fights. He's won some battles. He's gained some victories. God comes and says, I'm, I'm recruiting you back into the game. And we're told the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, this is the first time in the scriptures that we have this particular phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon. Now, we have had references to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit hovered over the waters. We find that in Genesis. There are certain instances where we do find the Holy Spirit referenced. But the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, this is a first. And it's in conjunction with this preposition, the Spirit of the Lord, we would call the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, came upon Othniel. And it seems to be from that particular empowering of the Holy Spirit into the life of Othniel that he was able to have the strength to gain the victory for Israel. This word upon. The word upon, it's upon to excess. It's not just a little bit of the Holy Spirit. It's a lot of the Holy Spirit. Not just filling him up, but overflowing from him. 
oozing out of him. This is a unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit working in the life of a human individual. Now, what we'll find is that this, while very rare in the Old Testament, we'll see it again in Judges, is quite a frequent thing when we get to the New Testament. In regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you need to understand, first, the Holy Spirit is equally God with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit's always presented in a masculine tense. He's a person. He's to be known, to be interacted with. The Holy Spirit is to be interacted with as real as we would interact with Jesus. In fact, Jesus is located at the right hand of the Father. Most of our interactions and our spiritual life happen through an interaction with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune Godhead. We find in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, three different prepositions within the Greek that help us define each of these three interactions. First, understand that you'll find the word para used with the Holy Spirit. The word para in the Greek means with. It's a simple word. Para is where we get the word parallel, to be with. Now understand this first interaction or ministry of the Holy Spirit occurs with every human being. You see, the Holy Spirit is with us. Whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit is in the world at work. And what is he doing? Well, his primary job is to bring people to the cross of Jesus. It's to bring them to a point of, of surrender and a point of, of, of restoration and regeneration. The Holy Spirit is trying to draw people to the Savior. And that, again, functions in everyone's life. Before you were a Christian, you experienced this interaction with the Holy Spirit, where you were doing whatever you were doing, and there was that still small voice speaking to you, or there was a friend that invited you. There was an invitation provided by the Holy Spirit to give your life to Jesus. There was a conviction of sin. There was a drawing, the Holy Spirit working with. We all experience that. And we still do, even as believers. Conviction, when we're doing what's wrong, to bring us back. But that's not where the ministry of the Holy Spirit ends, where it begins. You see, from that, we find a second preposition, in. E-N in the Greek, I-N in English. In fact, there's a famous passage in the Gospel of John that is a perfect example of this, where Jesus, with his disciples, were told, breathe on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came inside of them. In fact, it, it would appear from the writings of Paul and throughout the rest of the New Testament that it's this second preposition that is regeneration, that is our actual conversion. It's that process of, of, of rebirth. Nicodemus came to Jesus, said, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. He's like, how do I do that? Thinking about water. And Jesus said, it's not about water. It's about the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is with us, bringing us to Jesus. But then it's that moment of surrender that the Holy Spirit then comes inside of us. And he changes us. And he dwells within us. We're made new. Paul would say, at this point, old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. And it's that spirit inside of us operating and functioning that yields things from our lives. Godliness, goodness. In fact, Paul would call them fruit. They're called the fruit of the, of the spirit. They're not the fruit of you. They're not things being produced 
from you, but it's through the Spirit out of you. The Spirit inside, as we learn to walk in the Spirit, Paul would say, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we interact with the Spirit. The Spirit's within us, giving us access to the Father, helping our hearts cry out to the Lord. And then the Spirit will manifest not just fruits of the Spirit, but then we also have the gifts of the Spirit. Things that that manifest, again, from the divine presence within. Giftings. Words of encouragement or exhortation or prophecies or or, or words of knowledge. I'll I'll confess, my mother, godly gal, she very clearly had a, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were words of knowledge. Like my mom had the ability to know what trouble we were getting ourselves into without us even knowing or telling her. That is a terrible gift to have your mother possess because it's hard to get away with a lot. She takes one look at you and like, what you been doing? The Holy Spirit manifesting, working through her. So we have the Spirit with us, bringing us to the cross, bringing us to Jesus. And then when we bow our knee and we surrender, we invite the Holy Spirit to take up residency. This is the new covenant. Jeremiah talks about how the heart of stone is replaced with the Spirit of the living God. But that's not where the ministry of the Holy Spirit ends. We see this with Othniel, but we also see this in in the book of Acts. The Spirit of the Lord was the Spirit of the Lord with Othniel. Well, obviously, always. In Othniel, no. But does come upon Othniel. This is a totally different word to excess. You see, Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, before he ascends to the Father, He's given the great commission to the church, to to his followers, about 120 or so believers. They are Christians. They have given their life to Jesus. We've already had the reference of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit's been with them. Spirit is in them, okay? But before they go out, he says, you know, take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But before you do any of that, go to Jerusalem, wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, this dynamite when the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Now, this upon ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament occurs few and far between. Othniel's the first. And yet Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, says, hey, this rare thing that happened in the Old Testament, I want you to go, I want you to wait, because it's going to be made available to every person. That becomes a believer. The uponing of the Holy Spirit. And then we see in Acts 2, as they're waiting, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then there's this manifestation of, of gifts. The gospel's being declared in, 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 in a language where everyone can understand. And the church is empowered. See, understand that the Christian experience, that the Christian life, that your Christian walk is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, when you feel as though you're running on fumes or you feel as though I can't do this or I can't overcome this or I'm struggling with this or I can't do that, when you reach the end, that's not a bad place to be because it's letting you know that there's something in regards to your relationship with the Holy Spirit that needs to be re-engaged. Because God never asked us to live a life of godliness apart from the power to do so. Knowing that that power is foreign to humanity. We can't do it, but he can. So the Holy Spirit not just comes in us and regenerates us, but then comes upon us to empower us to overcome temptation, for ministry, for all kinds of purposes. I want to very quickly, because there seems to be a debate within Christianity Concerning this third role of the Holy Spirit, there are some that believe that that this was a, a unique thing, maybe for the apostolic church. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it for you. Saul's persecuting the church in Jerusalem, which has forced people to flee into the surrounding regions. One of the people that flee into the surrounding regions is a man named Philip, who we've been introduced to as one of the deacons. He's a designated doer. He's a table washer. And yet he goes out and God does this amazing work through Philip in Samaria. Now, word gets back to the apostles. You know, Philip's a B-possible. You know, so the A team's like, wait a second. Wait, Philip, the guy that was like pushing a broom, is leading this great revival in Samaria? We need to go check this out. So verse 14 of Acts 8. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. For they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's kind of a crazy story that happens from that point moving forward. But don't miss the dynamic. Philip goes, he preaches the word, there is a revival. People believe to the point, they've placed their faith in Jesus, that Philip has no problems baptizing them in the name of Jesus. Understand, the spirit was with them, and for these people, the spirit were in them. They were Christians, they were born again. Philip would not have baptized them in the name of Jesus apart from a conversion actually happening. Peter and John show up, and they're like, whoa, this is cool, but something is clearly missing in the lives of these people. They're saved. They've given their life to Jesus. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they're lacking something. And so what takes place? They're like, (laughs) they need the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Not just to be in them, but they need the power of the Holy Spirit. So they lay their hands, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out to the point that Simon a sorcerer is like, whoa, that's a cool trick. He wants to buy it from him, and that's the whole next story. But understand, you have this evidence, this dynamic of of people that are saved, but they're missing something. They're missing power. 
Othniel, this first judge. It's interesting, as we work our way through the judges, the judges tend to be very flawed people to, to some degree. Samson's a great example of this. Or Gideon and his doubt. Sometimes they're reluctant. Othniel is the one in which we have nothing, nothing bad said of him. He's a great guy. He's been doing the right things. But even Othniel, who had no flaw, who in fact had, had operated in faith, who had gone out and gained victory, had, had, had won a bride as a result, who comes from this family lineage of Caleb, this guy Othniel would fail apart from the Holy Spirit. And so he gets called. Nothing bad about him, no character flaw, no presented weakness. God comes and says, I need you to go and deliver my people. I need you to be a savior. I need you to raise up. And Othniel, an old man, I don't know. <laughs> I'll give you my power. And he pours his Holy Spirit upon him. And from that point forward, the victory was, would be his regardless. The war was a formality. This man would operate in the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you look at this story. And what results, there's peace in the land for 40 years, for a whole generation. And this is a generation that had gone into wickedness, uh, uh, wickedness who had adopted double trouble as their king. For eight years, now they're delivered. And under the leadership of Othniel and the powering of the Holy Spirit, there is peace, there is rest in the land for 40 years. And you look at that and you're like, wow, this power of God. And it's rare, and it's offered sparingly until you get to the book of Acts, and Jesus is like, I want to pour it out on everyone. So practically speaking, where does this land us? There are three ministries of the Holy Spirit. You've all interacted with him in the first. And most of you, I would, I would reckon have been filled with him. But if that is the it, the end, that's just two of the three. And if you find your Christian experience to be frustrating, if you find more failure than victory, if you seem weak, I encourage you for this third ministry to ask, Lord, you've offered this for me. You know I can't function without it. What this looks like, I don't know. But I need your power. I need your strength. I need your enabling. Zechariah 4 verse 6, we're told that it's not by might, my might. It's not by my power. It's not by my strength. This whole thing has to happen how? It's by his spirit, not just saving us, which is great, but empowering us. There is nothing more frustrating 
than trying to live the life that Jesus died and provided us apart from the power he promised us. And if you take my, don't, if you take my word for it, try it. It is frustrating, but it doesn't have to be. In Othniel, this first judge that's presented for us, we get this picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon, empowering. Othniel, an old man, I should should say, for those of you that are older and you feel weaker, your body doesn't do what it used to. There's, there's a lie, I think, that our culture promotes that you should retire because, well, you're just really not able to do anything anymore. So just, you know, go out, try to play golf, and then die. Have fun and then die. I think Othniel presents for us a picture. Hey, you might be old, and you might be weak, and you might be tired, But God can raise you up to deliver a generation. Until he calls you home, your journey isn't done. And the war's not over. Like the war's over when Jesus calls you home. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest. Until that point, you're never off the job. Now, you might need his spirit. In fact, I'd say you do. And for the rest of us, I think there's the counter argument. For those of us that are younger and have this tenacity and kind of that we're going to grab life by the horns and and we're going to do it. Well, do you want to be a part of a work that you accomplish or something that God does through you? Do you want to be able to look back on your life and say, man, I did a lot of things. Or you want to be able to look back and say, man, God did a lot of things through me. Hey, you can go out and you can do it. You're young, you're vibrant, there's some tenacity, exuberance. But what does it matter? Do you want your life to be anointed by God? Do you want to be his hands and feet? Do you want to make something happen? Or do you want to just be a part of an upawning work of the Holy Spirit? Years ago, I don't think I've ever told this story from the pulpit, but I was about this close to starting a church in Atlanta. I was working at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. I had put some feelers out there, and and, uh, and I, I was trying to do my own thing. Some human ingenuity running some stats, doing the data, thinking this would be a good area, we could do this, we could do that. And the whole time I'm working at another church, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my garage, and it was storming outside. I had the door up. I'm sitting there, it was was beautiful. And God spoke to me. Now, I'm not saying that this happens all the time, like this, but it was, it, it had to have been audible. It was that palpable and that real. And he says, he told me, he says, you will be successful. But that doesn't mean I was behind it. And if you want me behind it, you need to stop doing what you're doing. 
and you need to let me lead you and guide you and provide the right opportunity. It was like, take my sandals off my feet. I was on holy ground, and I was like, if I do anything more, I'm in, I'm in rebellion. And I stopped. And I was a youth pastor for another three years. And then this, Calvary 316, was a complete work of the Lord. I had nothing to do with it. And I love it because I had nothing to do with it. I know me pretty well. The things that I get involved with don't always work out very well. But when it's the Holy Spirit leading, when it's the Holy Spirit empowering, when he's doing the work, again, I, power, dynamite. It's literally dynamite. Is your Christian experience dynamic? Or is it eh, eh? Those were theological terms. Because if it is, all you have to do is say, Lord, I need a fresh wind. I need your spirit. I need your spirit to come upon me. I feel so weak. But may you provide me the strength. And so, Father, Lord, we just take a moment.